Hi, my name is B. I'm from Cambridgeshire, and you're listening to the Weird, Wacky, and Wonderful Stories podcast. Everybody and welcome to episode 63 of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. Hi everybody. First of all, thank you to B from Cambridge who sent us in that intro. Yes, thank you very much. I wish I had such a nice sounding um, podcast voice. How's that? Yeah, she's a very delicate voice, isn't she? Yeah, I think we're going to have to get her to do some more intros. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us today. We've got a bit of a treat for you today. We've got author and researcher Paul Sinclair, who's going to be joining us a little bit later on. What I do want to let you guys know is that we have now got a range of merchandise. Yay! Woohoo! <laughs> what was that? Was that a drum roll? Or no, was it was that me just banging a... on the desk. Oh, right. Okay, cool. Oh, and apparently that's me receiving a text. You put your phone on silent. I did, but it was still on. I did, but it was still on vibrate. Mm. I apologise. Yes, we have a range of merchandise now. We are selling it through Redbubble.com. You can go to our website. It's probably the easiest way to do it. Go to www.weirdwackywonderful.co.uk and there you will find links to our merchandise. And we've got everything, haven't we? We've got clothing, mugs. The only thing we don't have? Sales. <laughs> yeah. Travel cups, <laughs> pillows even, phone cases, laptop covers, uh, tablet cases. And we did not choose to do the duvet covers because that would just be weird. Yeah, yeah. They're sleeping with the Weird Wacky Wonderful Stories podcast. People. Well, no, we're not there, are we? <laughs> <laughs> but people would be sleeping with the Weird Wacky Wonderful Stories. I don't know if you want. If you want a duvet cover, let us know and we'll enable it for you. But yeah, we kind of thought that that probably no. wasn't going to be something that you'd want. No. So if you do decide to buy anything from that page, that greatly helps us because, as you heard probably on the last episode, we've just spent out a crap load of money to make sure we can continue doing this show because otherwise I'd be doing it on my own because lovely Bella would not be here with me. Oh, right. I was going to say, where the hell do I fit into all this? Well, that's what I'm saying. If we hadn't have paid that eight grand... Oh, yeah. Last week, you wouldn't be here, and the lovely Bryce would not be editing it for me. Oh, you called my son lovely. He is lovely. <laughs> when he tidies his room and when yeah. he does the podcast for me. Yeah. Yeah, that would greatly help us if you do decide to buy something. I'm not going to labour on it too long. Have we named our alien yet? No, we haven't. That was going to be the next thing I was going to say. Do please send us mail at weirdwackywonderful.co.uk any suggestions that you have for our alien friend because merchandise going forward will probably include the name that we choose. Yes, and it is being chosen on our next podcast. Yeah, so we episode shall be 64. revealing the name of our thus far unnamed alien who is starting to feel a little dejected. Yeah, a little bit unappreciated. The last thing I want to mention is we are still crying out for intros, just like B did earlier. If you want to send us an intro again, Record it on your voice recorder on your phone. Everyone's got one these days. Do it while you're driving. If you No, don't do it while you're driving. That's the last thing I want to do is tell people to do it while they're driving. But you could be in the car and someone else could be driving. And you could say, hey, come on, let's do an intro for We're Wacky Wonderful Stories podcast. Set same recorder. Just get everyone in the car to shout an intro for us. And then send it to mail at wackywonderful.co.uk. What would be good is a singing one. Oh, that would be so cool. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. We're putting the, the idea out there for you guys now. Someone send us a singing intro. You don't need to have the music. You can do it a cappella if you want, or you can do it with music. Fine. Or good good harmonies. or Yeah. Let's try one now. No. Come on. No. There are many things I will do in the name of the podcast, so but I'm not going to sing just because you say so. If I do it on my own, then it's good, but I'm not going to let you make me sing. Last week you did... But I chose to do that. <laughs> I wasn't under any pressure. Right, let's get to the meat of this episode then. We have with us today author and researcher who has been with us in the past. He currently still holds the record on our show for the most listened to episode. So he's a really popular guest. We know that you love him. Please welcome to the show, Paul Sinclair. Hi, Paul. 
Hi, Paul. Hi to you both, and thank you very much for allowing me to come on and share a bit of information with you guys, and hope we have an interesting 45 minutes, one hour. We'll see how we go. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've got to say that the show that we did with you last time is by far and away our most popular show at the moment, so you're definitely doing something right because our listeners definitely resonate with your research. I think what it is, Shelley, I mean, not sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet, I must do here, but I think it's just about being honest and fair with the witness telling the story as honestly as you can. You know, I'm I'm absolutely inundated with people coming forward now, giving me their information. I mean, this is something I've wanted for years, and now I've got it. It's a little bit too much, but I'm not going to turn it away. You know, and you've just got to treat people with respect. If they say they don't want the names used, I'll do it. I'll even go to the lengths of creating a story around the sighting. Not to lie about the initial sighting or anything like that, but in some instances I've had security men come to me telling me about what they've seen and they can't be placed in the situation that they were in and in their job and it it jeopardises their careers. So we've had to alter things but keep the initial sighting. So basically, I'm rambling here, guys, but just we've just got to be honest with people. We've just got to be fair, and that's the only thing we can do. I think that's what touches people, to be honest with you, is, is the fact that, as you said, there's no sort of spin, there's no sensationalism. This is what you've been told, this is what you're researching, and you know I think that that comes across really well. We've been looking at your YouTube videos. You've got a Truth Proof YouTube channel, which obviously follows the accounts that you talk about in your books we were looking at them over the last couple of days trying to get some material together to talk to you about today and there's just so much it's just unbelievable the first one that i'd really like to talk about is that you were talking to some chaps who were on a beach in scarborough and they were talking about five white spheres that came out from the cliffs with a red sphere above it. Do you want to tell us about that story? Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, it's, it's quite incredible. And just just before I start, Shelley, I'd just like to also say, as regards the YouTube channel, that's laid dormant for years, and I've got Les Drake and Leslie Kirby of Digital Creations to thank. They're doing most of that work. Obviously, I'm doing the research and adding the stories, but we'll jump straight into this. I've called it the Thousand Foot UFO in the Truth Proof 3. Obviously, we've no tape measure to to estimate if it was that big. But I was walking down this year to the RSPB Bempton to the cliffs in the evening, and there was two bird spots walking back up. They've got the big telephoto lenses, and uh, uh, that's usually the case. We're we're arriving as these guys are leaving, not these particular ones, but anybody. And we did the usual hellos, and this, this guy said, are you the UFO guy? And I thought, well, I suppose I must be. And basically, he said, I've got a story to tell you. His friend apparently had spoke to us last year uh, regarding unidentified objects, but we don't remember. I don't mean that there's some conspiracy there. In wintertime, a lot of people have balaclavas on and they're wrapped up and it it does quick. I just can't place him. Yeah, absolutely. This guy went on to tell me, Shelley, uh, that I think he said it was 1998. I don't have it in front of me, but in 1998, a regular thing for this, this chap would be to take his daughter to the amusement arcades, you know, the slots and the rides on Scarborough Seafront, evening time. He did this, and then after taking the, his, his child for the rides and that, they went to a hotel overlooking the sea with, a, I think it had a balcony or a, a glass area, where they could see up the coast and they could see in the distance Speeton and Bempton cliffs, sort of sticking out at various intervals. As they go up the cliff, they sort of drop. They really do look fabulous. Anybody not familiar with these things, Google them or Google Earth this. They're an incredible set of cliffs rising from 200 to 420 feet at the highest point, running for about, I don't know, four or five miles. So... This particular evening, he's in the pub, he's got uh, the bar, he's got a pint of beer, his daughter's got some a drink and some crisps, and there's a guy sat close to them, unrelated to them, but related to the story. And they're just looking out to see, it's dark, and they can see the, the surface of the water and the sort of sky above. And suddenly, a sphere of white light seems to come out from the cliff. He sort of catches his attention and he shows his daughter, and then another one comes out and another, until there's five large luminous spheres hanging over the sea with a red light on top of them. He can't believe this. And obviously, I don't know whether the other guy had seen it first or whatever, but there were an interaction then. All three of them are looking at this, the two men and the daughter, trying to decipher what they're actually looking at. And he said at one point, he said, because he believes it was all one object, and I asked him why, he said, because it moved in unison. He said at one point it sent a 
move out in a semicircle and then back to the same position. And as it did, everything, the five lights, the sphere on top, the red sphere, all moved as one. Nothing moved out of sync. He said, and it did this three or four times. He said, and we were absolutely amazed. He said, this thing, absolutely incredible to look at. Well, instantly I said, are you sure it weren't boats coming out on the tide, the night tide from Bridlington Harbour? No way, he said. I could actually see in some of the spheres, the cliffs behind them, you know, because these cliffs stick, stick out at various places up and down this four or five mile stretch. He'd established that this thing was off the surface of the water. He said, I could see the water below it and it wasn't lights from fishing trawlers coming out from Bridlington. So I've got this incredible story. I said, well, how big do you estimate this to be? Bearing in mind, we're just talking. I'm just gathering information from a guy. I've got no sketch pad. I've got nothing with me. I mean, Bob Brown, as my witness, was there. He's the Beacon of Light radio host. He was with me. And so he said, well, and he looked up at the visitor centre at the RSPB, and we're at the bottom now. And he said, easily, from where we stood now to the visitor centre, he said, and then behind you, it had gone out and over the cliffs and out to sea. So I thanked him. I said, well, that's incredible. That is, I couldn't estimate how big it was then. I said, amazing. And I thanked him for the story and off these, these guys went. Well, I said to Bob, I said, just wait there. Let's just stay here for a moment. And when they'd got it into the distance, I said, I'm going to pace it now to the visitor centre. We know we can't get an accurate 1,000 foot. And it, off the top of my head, guys, I can't think of the exact number of paces, but something tells me it was 417. But what it equates to is well over 1,000 foot which is incredible if he's telling the truth, and I've no reason to believe he isn't. It's in the same year, I believe, that the national newspapers reported a 1,000-foot... Uh, well, they, they termed it UFO as big as a battleship pursued by jets over the North Sea. Why? I'm not sure, that we, I'm not sure if we're going to be connecting his sighting to this, but nevertheless, it is incredible. I know we're talking about things on the U Truth Proof channel, but earlier this week, Monday of this week, I had an, an hour-long conversation with a retired Coast Guard about his UFO sighting, which I will be writing about. And this guy said, in 1998, we don't have a month, from a place called Aldborough, which would be about 25 miles up the coast from where these guys saw this five spheres of light, he said he saw over the sea, estimate, uh, the tra this is a good trained observer. This is a Coast Guard, been in the Coast Guard service a lot of years. We can't use his name. Don't forget, these guys signed the official secrets. Act. Absolutely. But he says, if you held a pencil out at arm's length, this thing was as big as a pencil. He's, and I said, because he'd, he'd been listening to this 1,000-foot UFO thing, he said, and I would estimate it to be longer than that. He said, and this were a row of lights. He said, there was more than five lights. He said, but it was spinning. He said, I said, well, how do you work out it was spinning? He said, because the right light would go out and the left one would appear and the right one would go out and the left one would appear. He said, and it was almost as though it was turning. And he observed this five or six miles out at sea from Aldborough in 1998. There's, there's, that's, I've just thrown that in on top of this sighting because I know I've never even spoke about it ever. Um, and I will be writing about it when I gather more details. But that's the Coast Guard sighting. And it all ties in with... The Hunmanby UFO landing, which was August 1998, which I don't think we've ever talked about. And to be honest, it would take about two hours to go through the story, where three men working in a warehouse on an industrial estate in August of 1998 claimed that a UFO landed in the compound at the back of the industrial estate where they worked. Military involvement, military roadblocks. I've pushed this and pushed this story. I've put on social media, I've, I've gone onto the Hunnambi sort of Facebook pages and asked if anybody remembers the roadblocks. I'm still trying to gather information, but I've spoke to all three witnesses face-to-face, first-hand accounts from 1998. They're all singing from the same hymn sheet. It's, a, it's an incredible story. And I'm thinking that there's maybe some connection to all of this, although these guys witnessed a classic, what he would say, 1950s stroke 60s, UFO, flying saucer. So that doesn't sound anything like what they've seen over the sea. But highly unusual events, nevertheless. I mean, I can carry on with that, Shelley, or we can jump to another one. I'll leave it with you guys. Well, I have a question. This was in 1998, yeah? 
Yes. Well, one of the videos on your YouTube channel was talking about a fisherman who was on the cliffs and he saw something and that was in 1998 as well. Exactly. That's why I said I'd carry on because I did want to talk about this. Yeah. This is a, a rock angler. I've described earlier, me and Bob Brown, we visit many days of the week. I mean, I was there last night, if I'm being truthful, with a guy called Steve Ashbridge. The fishing season starts throughout the winter when the seabirds are not nesting. And these guys, ardent fishermen, rock anglers, they stand on the edge of these sheer two to 400 foot cliffs and, and fish. And they, and they pull fish up from these sheer rock faces. But the point I'm getting at, me and Bob were there earlier this year, I think it was February this year, and the only thing of any interest in the distance down the cliffs towards Flamborough was the head torch of a rock angler. And we kept his eye on him and we set our cameras up and we're sort of sat discreetly in the dark. And I don't know what time span, but we'll, uh, at 30 minutes to an hour passed and we could see that this guy was on the move. We could see his light coming towards us. And I said to Bob, I said, look, I said, when this guy gets within about 50 feet or so, I'm going to put a light on. I don't want to startle him and frighten him. I mean, two guys in the mid in the middle of nowhere in a remote cliff top just coming upon us in the dark. It, it <laughs> might be quite right. Yeah. So that's exactly... That's exactly what I did, Bella. And what happened was this guy sort of drew up alongside of us with his fishing rod and his gear, asked us what we were doing. I told him, I said, look, I'm trying to film these lights that a lot of you guys have seen, a lot of the trawlermen have seen, farmers out on the wolds inland. The wolds, listeners, are an area of barren, well, not barren, it's it's grazing land for sheep and they grow crops on it, but that's the East Yorkshire Wolds and North Yorkshire. So he said, oh, yeah, I heard you guys were coming up here. He said, and he mentioned a few names, Andrew Barnby and other rock anglers who we've spoke to. I said, well, have you seen anything? You know, why are we talking to you? He goes, I've seen lots of things up here over the time I've been fishing. He says, this year will be my 50th year. I've been fishing it 49 years. So it's from man and, man and boy, really, fishing these cliff tops. And I said, well, what have you seen? I said, I asked him if he'd seen the spheres of light, the light what we've termed the intelligent light forms. And he said he hadn't, which were interesting so, to be up there observing all that time because let's not forget, these guys are better placed than anybody. They just actually sit looking out at the vast expanse of the sky on, on the edge of a cliff. Yeah, for hours and at a time. For hours and hours at a time. So this guy says, he said, the most incredible thing I've seen is a spaceship. And he just turned around. He says, and his words, spaceship, I don't use that word really. But I mean, what we're dealing with, are only words. He said, a spaceship landed on that hill over there. And he pointed to the hill about, well, I would have said about 300 yards away. I said, really? Yeah. He said, yeah, he did. And he says, but I've got to get home. He says, I, I, I need to be home. I said, fair enough. I said, would you talk to us about it? At another point, would you let us interview you? And he agreed. And the following week, we picked him up at his home. We brought him to the cliff tops, set a big light up, and we're behind the hill. We've got the sea, well, either side of us. We've got one side of the sea and this hill at the other. And he describes, he says it was November 1998 and it was a club match. Now, I need to say here as well, I'd already heard this story from the son of one of the rock anglers who was actually there that night with him. They don't sit together, these guys. They're probably hundreds of yards apart, up and down the cliffs. But this this guy told me about the night his dad came home frightened to death and left all his fishing tackle on the cliff tops and did a runner. Mm -hmm. And this is the same night. I, we confirmed it because I asked him if he knew this guy. And he said, oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, he said he were there. So th that were interesting. I'd got already got a second-hand account off the son, this guy, the other guy's son. So he started telling us this story. He said, I'm, we're, we're sort of fishing there. It's a lovely, clear night. He said, a bit sharper and bit of moonlight, better than it is tonight, conditions. He said, and I just sort of turned around and looked, and I thought, what's a combined harvester doing up there at this time of night? <laughs> so I'm looking at this thing, sort of scratching my head. He said, and I can see other other lights from other anglers and things moving about. They'd obviously seen it. He says, and then I realised I can see the contours of the land. I think we can all imagine this, can't we, and see the sky above the the, out, the dark outline and then the sky. Yep. He said, and the, I thought, there's a bloody band. I'm sorry for swearing, guys. There's a band of sky between the land and this thing and i also need to stress there was no hills at the back that could have created this illusion i know this area i know this land very well this was the highest point he said so with that he said it's it's descending this thing's got lights spinning all around it yellow and white lights and it's flashing as well he said not an helicopter or anything it's totally silent he says and as it slowly descends sparks start to jump off the ground 
And then when it actually lands, the ground around it set on fire. Right. I said, well, what did you do? He said, we packed us things up and we left. Everybody everybody <laughs> left. <laughs> Good choice. It, it, and, you know, he said something quite amusing. I don't know whether it were bravado. I mean, because this guy will be in his 60s, but and I don't think he... He said, I'd have probably gone to investigate, he said, but I'd got some fish as well and I needed to get back. But, <laughs> but he'd relayed this incredible story from 1998. Once again, we've got the Humanby 98, we've got the Coast Guard 1998, and we've got the, the Speeton 1998, you know, the guy who saw the five spheres. But what was interesting, uh, the added point of interest for this, and once again, I've only Bob to back me up on this, and the rock angler, I'd already asked him about these, what we've termed the intelligent light forms, and I'm facing the sea as I'm talking to this guy, and I packed the camera away. I think you know what I'm going to say anyway, and I packed everything away, and I just looked up into the sky, and I'm not talking about thousands of feet. We're talking below cloud, two huge, like tangerines in the sky just lit up, and then another one to the left of the, the two. And I sort of went, wow, look at that. And this rock angler looks, he went, oh, good God, I've never seen that. What are they? I said, well, this is what we I spoke to you about earlier. Bob saw them. I straight down for the camera because he's got good night vision and everything. As soon as I picked the camera up, opened it up, ding, 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 these lights went off. Stood there for 10 minutes, nothing happened. We'd brought this guy up to the clifftops. We'd picked him up, so we were taking him home. Ordinarily, me and Bob probably would have stayed there a lo quite a long time and hoped to have caught some actual footage of them. Halfway down between the car park and, and where we were situated, they lit up again. I did the same thing got the camera out, they went off. They lit up one more time before we actually arrived near the car park and I didn't even bother getting the camera out. <sighs> this is one of the reasons I think that there's some kind of awareness to these lights. And just because, uh, you know, people, scientific minds, academia, just because they can't get their heads around how these things work and they want to come up with all sorts of theories, in which in most cases are far more stupid than what we're saying we've actually seen, these weren't earth lights. We've seen these lights light up and punch into a multiple of four and five, disappear instantly and appear 10 miles down the coast instantly and then switch off again. I'm not an expert. I'm not a scientist, but they're not flares. They're not Chinese lanterns. They move against the wind. You don't see them projected from a, a trawler or a vessel. You don't see them dropped from aircraft. What you do see is they just switch on in the sky, stay there, switch off, appear in a different part of the sky. These things are special. These things deserve, they deserve scientific study. And, you know, the Coast Guard and the lifeboat logs, at least from eastern North Yorkshire, give you an accurate record or give you a record of, of call-outs, and I've termed them in the third book and the second book, of, we're calling them the flares that never were. Because obviously a member of the public, a police officer, a coast guard, a trawler man will report seeing unexplained lights in the sky, orange spheres of light, red spheres of light. This report creates a reaction where lifeboats are sent out. Bridlington lifeboat filing multiple lifeboats, sometimes for nine hour searches, looking for a ship in distress, looking for a downed aircraft, although nothing's reported. And usually... And I don't mean everyone. Obviously, in some instances, there's genuine concerns and there's some a vessel in distress. But over the decades, there are countless call-outs to these lights that remain unresolved. And what it does, it just says false alarm with good intent. Mm. And that's a sweeping statement that just covers it all. And people just seem to accept that. They accept that they've had four lifeboats out from different areas. People have been reporting these lights all night. Something exists, but no one wants to look any further. No one wants to look any deeper because they're doing what I'm doing, actually. They're drawing a blank, but I'm not going to give up on it. I just keep looking. And I've spoken to Coast Guards off the record, and they've said, we get glasses on these, we get binoculars on these lights. They don't act like flares. There's no smoke on them. They don't illuminate the area. I mean, there's a massive clue, a flare that it's designed to illuminate the sky and the area around it. These things are vibrant and bright, but they don't illuminate anything except themselves. Just... I know we didn't intend talking about no, them, no, guys. No, 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 it's uh, absolutely fine. It's good because you've actually moved on to one of the things that I was going to ask you about, and that is there's a video that you've actually got on your channel of one of these light anomalies 
where you actually see it moving across the sky from left to right, and then it actually dips down and seems to go into the sea. That I was, I was with a, a police officer, a friend of mine, Dave. I'm not sure how to say his surname, but I, I was with him only a few months ago. We were up observing. We'd been we'd walked down towards Flamborough. We'd have seen it. Obviously, you've not you've you've not got the camera focused and filming on the sky, on the sea, when these things occur, because you just wouldn't have the battery life to support it. Or, and it's a massive area, so you wouldn't know where to point it. So as we're walking, this thing came up out of Filey Bay. So if any any listeners want to Google these areas, it's Filey Brig. It's a huge backbone of rock that travels along the sea. It's a, it's, it used to be dangerous for fishing boats and everything. Now it's got beacons and boys in the water, flashing lights to warn people, because when the tides are... And covering it, and obviously nobody can see it, and it's treacherous. But this thing came up out of the water, a luminous white stroke yellow sphere of light. The wind was blowing off the land, which I'm just trying. I'm just sort of saying this because people would say, "Well, that that could be a Chinese lantern." It flew under its own steam and then appeared to turn in towards us. And I don't think it was because we were there. But it went so low and either went into the water, but just disappeared. It's not. You've seen the footage, then, Shelley. So yeah, you, yeah, you know sorry, that yeah. it's not a, a three-second snap of something, and you can clearly see the sky. You can clearly see the water. I think it's a good bit of footage, and it it, it displays that there's something there. That the big question is, what is the something? Because it weren't an aircraft. Well, I tend to look at those things with an element of scepticism, as I know you do, because I'm trying to look for a reason. I'm trying to look for an answer or an explanation as to what it could be. And and I couldn't find one on that. You describe on the video about the fact that the wind is blowing out to sea and yet this thing is coming towards you. So as you rightly said, a Chinese lantern wouldn't behave in that way. It seemed to make a proper turn. It didn't drift. It looked like an intentional turn. Do you see what I mean? It wasn't something that just drifted. It was quite interesting because you zoomed in on it as well and you said there didn't seem to be a splash like it had gone into the water. So did it just drift slowly under the water? So therefore it's not something dropping or falling like something that was unintelligently, I know that's not necessarily a word, controlled, you know, something that would just fall out of the sky would create a splash. This didn't. Or did it just go out when it reached the level of the water? Don't know. You've sort of covered most of them points that I would have said there, Shelley, and you make a good point as well. And I think uh, anybody who views the footage ought to realise that the, we were six miles away from Filey where we were stood. You're looking out to sea, and like I've said, from them cliff tops, you're looking anything from 20 to 22 miles to the horizon. That covered five to six miles in what? In out, you know, in what? In what? In the time frame of I can't remember how long the bit of footage lasts. And I would have got better footage of that if I'm being truthful. But I'm, I'm, my long-range vision is excellent, but close-up it's not. And I didn't have my glasses at hand to focus in really good when that thing were coming towards us. Uh, and, and I think I maybe commented on that on the on the bit of film, but uh, it's after the after the event now. But you know we've got something. There's something of that can't be denied. It's just what what was it? That's the big question. I mean I know that there's no shortage in this subject of experts. People will tell you exactly what it is and tell you what race of aliens are coming to this planet and, and, and they've been. But, I mean, I'm not an expert and I can't tell you any of that. All I can tell you is what I've, what I've experienced personally as a child, what the people are relaying to me, and I'm telling it as truthful as I can. Uh, I don't think experts exist in this, Shelley Bella. I don't think they exist at all. How can I be an expert in something we've got no clue about? basically. Yeah. We're just observers. Yeah, no, absolutely. On a recent video, one of the ones you just put up within the last couple of weeks, you say that you've curtailed your visits alone to the cliff tops. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened to make you decide this? Yeah, it, there'll, there'll be a film going up shortly. I, I don't know when uh, Digital Creations, I mean, we've already done the little podcast for it, but I don't know whether if that's what you call it, I'm, you know, me and, te- me and I'm not technical guys. The voiceover so for it. Yeah, voiceover. Yeah, yeah. Right. So th- this, the reason for this, I mean, we've always known that. I mean, the people have vanished up there. There's strange cryptid sightings. I mean, I've had a few experiences myself with a guy called Andy Ramsden and with Bob Brown. But uh, the the clincher was the one from February the 7th this year, and I've called it the Three Para Werewolf. So this is two retired paratroopers three para that were up there wild camping and i don't think we've i don't think this is on the youtube channel yet is it uh, no nope. i don't think it nope. is any 
So they were up there in, on February the 7th, 2019. How do I know that? Because after we'd made the film, The Bempton Phenomenon, me and Chris Turner, this guy obviously has had this experience with his friend and he's looking for answers. He's seen something that he quite openly says was dragged from hell. His words, not mine. Dragged from hell. And he put on his Facebook page, I saw something at Bempton last night from a nightmare. And he put it on on February the 7th, the same day that they got back after the experience. And it's still there. And basically, they went to Flamborough Head to do some wild camping. They took two dogs with them, uh, a terrier-type dog and a Patterdale Staffordshire Bull Terrier Cross. I'm just giving you a bit of detail. This, these guys like to be out in the wilds. They've, they've seen conflict in Iraq and different places, you know, during their time in the army. And they've seen all sorts of been in critical situations. But the point I'm getting at, Rob in particular, he says, I've never seen anything as terrifying as what I saw at Bempton. And I've spoke to him extensively and he's allowed me to record him. So after parking their car at the RSPB car park, they went down to the cliffs and set up a bit of a camp. Not a fire, just a bit of a sort of tent and just a bit of camping. And at, in between three and four in the morning, they decided to go for a little walk along the cliff tops. Now, I asked him, I said, did you turn right or left when you got to the bottom of the cliff path? He says, well, we turned right, so we know they were going towards Flamborough. So the fence separating the cliff path and the, the walkers is on your right-hand side. He said, and... We're sort of the dogs. He said everything was strange. That's an interesting point that he put up. He said, if you go there, if you ever go there, Paul, he says, and he says, and it feels off. And I said, what do you mean feels off? He said, everything felt electric. It felt prickly. He said, I can't explain it. He says, we, we didn't know that what was going to happen, but we, we both thought it felt weird. Every, you know, the, the, the airs on their arms were sort of stood on end. He said, it just felt off. He said, and the dogs wouldn't run about or do anything. The dogs were strange. They were very quiet and stayed close to us. They wouldn't leave our sides. He said, it was freezing cold. Uh, the grass were glistening with ice. The sky were quite clear. Early into the walk, he said, we lit up a pair of big yellow eyes, as big as golf balls, was his words. Now, I can relate to this because 2016, 17, me and Bob Brown used to see a set of big yellow eyes. Surprise, interestingly, on the distant hillside where the guy claimed he'd seen, as he termed it, the spaceship. And we could never work out what they were because don't forget we spend a lot of time at night in different places, Flixton and all over. I know what a fox's eyes reflect like and badgers and deer, but these were big yellow eyes. But jumping back to the guys, they turned to each other. They weren't familiar with these eyes and they knew they were big. And all the time, dogs are acting peculiar. Oh, oh and, and the eyes that we were viewing coincided with the same time that the animals were being mutilated in and around a sim the similar area. Whether this was responsible for it, I don't know. So, but we carried on walking and we're walking down this, this sort of cliff top path. We were sort of wondering what kind of creature it was or what it is we'd seen. He said, and then we, we approached what would be a viewing platform and they're not that familiar with this area. They've just decided to come to Bempton or come to East Yorkshire and do a bit of, uh, I don't know, cliff top walking and wild camping. He said, and we lit these eyes up for a second time. He said, and they just didn't seem interested. They didn't act like a rabbit caught in the headlights. He says, and we, re we remarked how unfazed whatever it was seemed to be. It just didn't seem bothered. It just didn't act like a normal wild animal would. So he's describing the lay of the land, he said. And he said, close to this viewing platform, further down the cliffs, 100 yards away or so, he says, there's two large gate posts without a gate on. And there's about, they're about 40 inch wide. I could, and I knew instantly where he was. They're about eight by eight inch, these posts. A bit silly, really, because there's just, just a, they're just there on path and they don't really do anything. He said, and we walk towards these these gate posts and as we as we passed through the gate we sort of flicked the torch on to the right of us he said and it was there it was there 20 foot in front of us not 200 yards away he says 20 foot he says and his words were it was hunkered down and it looked like a giant hyena why he said and we were absolutely terrified he said it was bearing its teeth at them but it wasn't making a sound but it was showing us its teeth this thing absolutely terrified these guys he said it was in a position as though like a tiger about to pounce and he believes he honestly believes rob believes that this thing although i don't it's only his assumption and he were there i wasn't he thinks it thought there were only one of them on the path 
He said, he said, but it was there. He said, and then, oh, and he said, the dogs, he says, the dogs were terrified. The dogs' tails were on the tummies. He says, these, our dogs were absolutely, I'll not swear, but they were, they were very, very frightened. He says, and this thing had a hump on its back that were, and all the fur was up, pointed up and bristling, dark brown in colour. He said, and they, they just couldn't believe what they were seeing. It looked like something from a horror film. He says, but then it stood up. And and this guy's in the moment when he plays this recording. I mean, we played part of this recording at the Awakening Conference in Manchester uh, when we did a presentation uh, earlier this year. And it, it, it really, he really is in the moment. He said, I just couldn't get over it. He said, it stood up on two legs. There's a bleep as well in recording. He said, and it took a step. It took, and he's trying to get it out. It took a step towards us. And I asked him how big he thought this thing was, and he estimated it to be seven foot tall. Jeez. He said, and its chest was cream cream or white coloured. He said, and we had the torch on it for five to eight seconds. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to say 10 seconds because I, I don't think they know themselves. He said, but I asked him about its actual bone structure, as in did it have a rib cage like a dog or did it have clavicles like we would have, you have, Shelley, you know? Mm. He said it had the shoulders like a man would have. He said, but it was lean. This thing was very muscular and lean. He estimated it would have weighed about 300 pounds, and he said its arms were unusually long, and at the end of its arms it had hands with claws. One thing that he's not, he didn't say in the initial recording, which he's told me about afterwards, because this is a bit that troubles him, but he said it lifted, I think he said its right arm up under its chest. He said and its finger, and I, I think we'll be talking about its forefinger, was doing a beckoning movement, but not at him. I said, what do you mean it was like saying, come here? He said, I don't know. He said, it's finger. He said, I can just see it moving backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Now, these guys have been in real war zones. They've been in real dangerous situations. But he stressed he's never, ever seen anything like this. And as I said, his words were, it's, it's been dragged from, from hell. So... Basically, you have sorry. Little points like that that you say about the finger beckoning and everything. If someone was going to make up a story, they wouldn't add something in like that, which just seems just totally out of place for the story. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think it's made up. I apps. I hope. Well, when when Les puts this next uh, YouTube up, I think the the part of the recording will be there. You can feel the emotion and fear in this guy's voice, and I don't think that. Um, He's making it up. I think he's seen it. But jumping to the most, Im not important part, but the part that I would like to stress is, I actually don't think, and I know I've said this before, probably on, on the last show I did with yourselves, but I don't think that the United Kingdom has the landmass to support, to hide anything of this nature. Do I think it exists? Yes, I think it exists, but not in the in the way that we would perceive a, a living, breathing apex predator to, to exist. I think that these things are in in areas all around the world. This part of eastern North Yorkshire has, has the potential for some reason to throw out all types of unexplained phenomena, and this is just one of them. And I think we've got parallel worlds sort of overlapping our own, and these areas, these thinner areas, are allowing these things to come through and manifest once again, these are just opinions and theories because I've got no proof to back up what I'm saying. But what we have got to understand is if all these people that are coming forward with these incredible stories are telling the truth, or if the vast majority of them are telling the truth, then something very real, something definitely is happening in these locations. So you've also got the big cats, don't you? That's correct, yeah. I mean, interestingly, that was February, I think, of this year. And don't forget, I didn't realise, I didn't get the story of the three para werewolf until later on in the year when this guy was doing some research of his own, shall we say, because he can't believe what he's seen and he's looking and he comes across the things that I'm investigating and that's why we made contact. But in February, I think this year, there's a pond quite close to Bempton and Speeton within like a mile called the Buckton Pond. It's a little village. And five independent people, unknown to each other, claimed that they'd seen a panther, not a, not a little sort of tabby cat or something, a black yeah. panther around the pond at Buckton. Now, I did a bit of investigating as such and a bit of research there. I started going up about 4.35 in the morning, hoping I would catch a glimpse of this and get it on film. I did find two deer carcasses and fully grown deer that had been half eaten, which sort of 
I mean, obviously, they could have been shot or could have died of natural causes, but they were very close to the pond. These deer carcasses were very close to an, I think it's an SSSI area. I think it's a site of special scientific investigation. There's a sign up on the fence where they were. And so that's something else that's been thrown up by other people's research that strange things seem to be happening in, in these scientific investigation areas. But that's another story. But interestingly, the black cats, once again, location is key have been seen around this pond, I won't say for years, I would say for decades. But there's there's no great expanses of woodland for these things to disappear to. And the, this thing was seen probably over a five-day period, and then it's not been seen since. I think that where you were saying about those guys a couple of minutes ago who saw that, I don't know what you'd want to call it, creature, which just seemed totally out of place. And as you said, we don't necessarily have the habitat for it to hide. And I think that maybe you're alluding to some kind of maybe parallel universe or some possibility like that. And I think something that tends to support that theory is the experiment that you did with the watches. Ah, yeah, the the, the time experiments. I mean, uh, the, the problem I've got here, guys, is I've, I've not got the information in front of me, but I think it was 2016, 17. We'd been up there. My wife had been up there the year previous and with me. She doesn't like going up. She won't go up there now, if I'm being truthful. Whilst up there, she, there's a wooden fence, three-bar fence around most of it. But as you get further out of the area, near the old RAF base, there's a three-wire three fence, smooth wire, separating the cliff edge to, uh, and the path. And Mary touched the fence and got an electric shock off it. Now, I need to stress that this fence is not electrified. There were also along the path, and I'm not talking about I'm not talking about h- hundreds. I'm talking about thousands and thousands of dead bees along this path. Mary said to me, "She said well, that's it. So I'm not coming up here again." And I even touched the pa- the path and said, "Look, it's not electrified, Mary." And uh, I think I put my tongue on it. Well, I know I did, which is probably stupid, <laughs> but I did. So, that's and, a brave uh, man. Well, I, I did that. Excuse me, guys. I'm just moving because I, I want to see if I can find. I've got it. I can. I don't want to start stating facts without the information at hand. I've got That's a little right. bit here. No problem. So it, it was set. I started what I called the time. I spoke to a rock angler as well up there, and this got me thinking after Mary's thing that happened in 2016, and her watch stopped at 5.20. We didn't know at that time. But whatever it was, the electric shock stopped her watch, and I still got the watch. I think I put some pictures on it in the book, and, you know, I mean... So it, the jolt stopped her watch. That's what I'm saying. But it, it got me thinking because I spoke to a rock angler up there, I don't know, a few months later during the night and uh, probably asked, asking him if he'd seen any unusual things. And he was telling me he had seen these lights. And he also told me about the time that he came down. I think he'd come from Durham or somewhere. So quite a, a journey. And he looked at his watch and thought, I'll fish for another hour. We'll call it nine o'clock. And uh, it, the perceived hour passed and he looked and he, and his watch had stopped. Some, now, obviously, this can happen, but it, it sort of got me thinking, like, you know, is there something affecting time up here? So on September the 11th, I've got this bit of paper in front of me, listeners, so I'm not just plucking a bit of information out of the air. September the 11th, 2016, I started what I called the time experiments, and I buried watches at 100, 100 paces, 400 feet apart. So I think that equates for the 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 one we did earlier with the 1,000-foot UFO. Mm. So 100 paces equates to 400 feet apart. And I put two watches in a sealed plastic, like money bags, inside a sealed plastic container. Analog quartz watches set at the exact time, at each one. So we say each watch was set at 5 o'clock when I put them in, and every, everyone's reading the same time. Now, on November the 23rd, 2016, because I was going up at least once a week and digging these watches up. I had to go when there were nobody around, and I knew exactly where I'd put them because I made sure that the, I knew which fence post they were again. And there's, there's, there's sort of a splayed fence post with a 45-degree bar of wood going down uh, in at various places to, to strengthen it when they torsion the wire. So I knew where I'd put them. So I was going up at least once a week and checking these watches. A bit sad, guys, I know, but that's what I was doing. Well, <laughs> November the 23rd, 2016, two of the watchers had lost an hour. They were telling the same time. So let's assume that each, all the all eight watchers, there's four boxes with two in each in box. They weren't at first, but I, I added another two boxes. All eight watchers 
are reading five o'clock, but two of them, one box, so six are reading five o'clock, one box is reading four o'clock, but at the same time. Something had affected them. I thought I'd got some kind of, I'd made some kind of scientific discovery, although in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing, is it? But uh, it was interesting. Something, had, those watches were an hour slower than the rest of the watches that were buried up there, sort of 400 feet away from each other. So something had happened. You know, and then I took a geophysicist up there called Andrew Eels. He'd been he'd, he'd become interested in the light forms and everything. And he he wrote a paper because whilst he was up, he, he went up and observed and then he went up by himself. He took a, his cousin up, actually, as well, a, a guy who was a counsellor. And I'll not say the guy's name, but while they were up there, he observed lights above the water, lights that tilted at 45 degrees and then shot bars of light out of them. And he, he wrote a paper, and which he's allowed me to use, in I think it's in the second book, and he, he calculated the distance from, from the cliffs to the horizon. Basically, he, he looked at it from a scientific, with a scientific mind, and he couldn't account for what happened. So, you know, just quite incredible things that happen up there. Uh, but everything, Shelley, everything seems so detached from the other that nobody seems to connect anything. It's almost as though there's an invisible thread running through it all, but nobody thinks to connect it. The, the big cat scene at Buckton. Who would have known that, I think that was February, February, March time, who would have known that two ex-paratroopers in February were on those cliff tops and they claim that they've seen something resembling a, a, a werewolf? Who would connect the cats to that? Who would connect the cats to the spheres of light? But at the same time, these things are being seen. It's almost as though when the events start to happen, it's like a domino effect and lots of things are unfolding at the same time. But they're all so detached, they're all so distant to one another, nobody seems to make the connection. So is there anything else that you've got planned then in terms of experiments or where are you going to go with that next? Well, I've left the boxes. I haven't looked at them for ages, I must admit. I got I, I won't say I got sick of it, that'd be that'd be wrong, but it's a bit monotonous waiting, making sure that the coast's clear because you can't in the dark, even though I know where these posts are, it's difficult to bury them again. They're not very deep, but and make sure everything's covered so you so nobody else is gonna find them. So I've not looked at these boxes for probably over a year and they can stay in the ground. But we've done Myself and Chris Turner, who, who made the documentary Bringing Down the Light, we've, we've tried laser experiments where we fire a laser at a point, a target, I don't know, hundreds of yards away, looking if there's any oscillation in the beam. We've, we've, we've hit it with everything. We've been up there with thermal imaging cameras. Whatever is, whatever's operating... Whatever happened, whatever you whatever you've seen, whatever ex, you experience, it seems to be on its turn. It's always ahead of. I will, it's one step ahead is not adequate to say. It's just ahead of what we're thinking. I've even thought, guys, of going up there because I've tech, I've got night vision cameras. I've got all sorts of equipment, EMF meters. We've got a Geiger counter. We've, we've I've even thought of starting to go up with nothing because it's almost as though you're seeing these things when you least expect it, when it's, it's so difficult and just, just absorb the experience. I went with a, another police officer, which is quite amazing because we've got these serving police officers that are interested in the phenomena. This guy literally just started writing about his account and I've called it the speed and figure of eight. And he went, he read the books and he went up to satisfy his own curiosity. He said, I went up thinking there's going to be nothing to this. And he went up on August, I think it was August, August the 7th this year. And he'd been up previously in the night and experienced nothing. Never told me, he didn't contact me until after the experience. And then he walked from the RSPB centre towards the the, the old RAF base and then on to Speeton. So probably about two miles away. And he stood on the iced point of land which is the trig point at Speeton, where the cliffs are 420 feet. He said, I'm just sort of looking about. I'm spending a bit of time in this area. And I look down the cliff path, bearing in mind there's nothing higher, no other land. He said, and suddenly a figure of eight, a maroon shape of an eight, lit up just above the path. I'm looking at this and I'm, I just can't believe it. I says, I can see the base, the old RAF base in the background, silhouetted, but this thing's close. He said, and I'm 
he said, I thought, right, get my torch. He said, and I've got a cheap torch. He said, it'd do about 100 metres, the beam. He says, and as soon as I went to press the torch, these lights went out. He said, literally. He said, but they were immediately followed by three of the whitest, brightest white lights he'd ever seen. Interestingly, he said, they didn't illuminate anything. He said, but I could see the grass. I could see that they were... It, behind them, I could see that they were on. They were fairly close. He said, "But I'd got the torch on them now, and they were at the very extent of the torch's beam." He said, "And there's, there's three. He said, and they're evenly spaced, but the middle one's slightly higher." The torch beam stayed on them five to ten seconds, and then these things switched off. He said. Well, what he said, he said, I fumbled about. He got a zip on his shoulder pocket to get my phone out. He said, I wanted to try and record them. He said, and I've got the torch on them. I'd already looked at them. He said, so I just temporarily took my eyes off them to get my phone. When I got the phone, I looked again and they'd gone. He said, so from that point, I set off running, not in fear. He said, I wanted to solve this. I think, I'm thinking there's somebody on path 100 yards away. There's got to be an explanation. He said, the figure of eight looked like it, Two circles that had had a belt pulled round them, a dark band. He said there was a slightly darker band in the middle. Uh, but jumping back, he said he set off running. He said, and I wanted to solve it. He estimates it took him 40 to 60 seconds to get to where he'd seen these lights. Bear, bearing in mind, 100 metres, 100 yards, it might sound like a long time. You're on a cliff. It's over rough foot. terrain. <laughs> yeah, over over a, over a path in the darkness. He's yeah. not, I, I don't think it's going to be going like Linford Christie. Shows my age that, doesn't it, going back there? But uh, <laughs> So he gets at the perceived spot and there's nothing, absolutely nothing. He knew he were roughly in the place where the torch beam was. Now, what are the, what are the odds of this? You know, I mean, he, he, he's no idea what it was, he, you know, a, a skeptic might say, well, it's just pure coincidence and there's got to be a logical explanation for this. Well, I'd like to hear what they think it is. This guy's been several times since and I've spent two nights up there till four in the morning where we've we've hoped, where we thought we might spend £90 now on a, an incredible torch as well, where we might get a result. He's travelling from quite a distance to get, I'm not so where he's travelling from, but to get to these spots and it's not replicated itself. Interestingly, the last time we went up there, we parked in the RSPB car park, and this would be about 8.30 at night, early into the night, five minutes into the journey down the cliffs, above the base, a white with a tinge of blue. Like I, would have, I said it was oblong, but he, he doesn't know, but a light. But anyway, in the sky, well up, just lit up, large expanse, literally just switched on and off, and we both stopped, and he said, wow, do that again. And we stood there looking at this thing, or looking where this light had lit up, but it, nothing happened. We spent the rest of the night till the early hours with nothing of an experience. He wanted to go. He's got uh, tells me he's got four days off now this week. I think starting today, but I've just have too much on to get up there. I was there last night, so and this guy's braver than me because he he's been wandering these cliff tops before prior to having the experience on his own looking for something do you know uh, so it's, it's it's quite interesting uh, and now i don't know if time will allow but he asked me if i'd go get some daylight pictures from the the trig point from the highest place at speeton which i said i would do and i went up uh, on tuesday in august uh, it was i think it was a tuesday it was a lovely hot day and i took a rucksack and my little dog with me and we set off. We parked at Buckton, the place where we've just talked about where the cat was seen, yeah. because that's easier to access the cliffs at Speeton. And it's about one and a half, two miles away. And I walked up there and I got to the trig point and I took photographs for him of, of the daylight in daylight. So because he, he's still absolutely his head's mashed. He wants to solve it, but he can't. So on the way back, midpoint between Speeton and Buckton, the path sort of goes off on a sharp right angle. And you're getting onto it's called Hoddy Cow's Lane. That's the actual name of it. So you can Google this lane, people. It's very close to the SSSI area. This is I was probably hundred foot away from this when it happened. Somebody shot a bullet at me. Not a pellet, a bullet. What? It went straight yeah, it went straight past my chest, the velocity of it. We've all heard pellets whiz past us. I would have thought somebody, oh, somebody's got a pellet gun. This thing then hit the bank, then the trees, which would have been about, I don't know, 20 foot away, and blew an area of ground up. 
I dropped to my knees and sort of shuffled along and rang 999 straight away. We have an incident number and everything. And the police officer, I told him, I said, look, I'm on Hoddy Cow's Lane. I said, somebody's just shot a bullet at me. I said, well, I didn't say at me. I said, it could be a farmer or a, somebody having a, this is daylight, by the way. This is three in the afternoon. I said, it could be somebody who's shot at a deer or a hare, missed it, but it's just gone straight past me. This is, I don't mind saying this because it's true. The police officer said to me, are you safe now? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, I'm, I said I've moved away from it in case he thinks he's had another shot at this perceived animal. I said, and I'm, I, 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 said I feel okay. I said, but I'm just telling you in case I don't get back to my car. He goes, well, hang up and ring 101. What? No kidding. Yeah. My so God. I rang 101. Yeah, I rang 101 and got no reply, and I went home, and I rang them there straight away. Now, they'd no record of my 999 call, which is on my phone. Now, I can't go talking about the police not doing this and the police not doing that if I'm lying. This is as it happened. So my next thing, I've put a complaint into the police because I can't believe that a fire, even if I were lying, a firearm's been discharged and, and literally gone straight past my chest. And... They're just looking into it now. They're, they're investigating it, but that's that's as much as we've got. I'm have not you, have saying you got, that. I've have got, you got? Sorry, have you got access to a metal detector? I have, and what I, I will have. Let me just. Um, you, you're on it. You're on it. Actually, Shelley, I went. I went up. I went after I rang the police and told them what had happened and told them I'd made the nine nine call and they've been out to speak to me now. But uh, I said I'm going back up there with a friend. I said because where that bullet landed, I'm going to find it. And they said, oh, we wouldn't advise that and everything. Anyway, I went back up. Where it hit, there's you picture the sort of six-inch square fencing that they'd use to keep sheep, separate mm -hmm. fields for sheep and livestock. One strand of barbed wire. That's in the middle of a hedgerow. You couldn't even see it because the hedgerow's quite long, but overgrown, or it was then. So I've already decided, soon as things die back, because I know exactly, I don't know exactly where it landed, but I know roughly the area it landed. I'm going back with a metal detector. I can't get into it at the moment. There's brambles and all sorts, and this fence that I didn't even know was there at the time because it's, it's in between the hedgerow, do you see? Uh, so, yes, I'll be going back, and that one's already been – I won't be. I don't mean covered, but it's been touched on. That's yeah. the idea, if we can find this bullet. So, yeah, you were on that one. Well done. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, listen, I've got a little bit of, to support your story there, okay? And we're more or less on an hour now, so we'll, we'll cut this short. But my nan and granddad, when they were alive, they're, they're, they're both gone now, but my granddad was called over to a neighbour's house because my grandfather was a fireman, and he was brought over to uh, a neighbour's house because she had found something in her husband's drawer which she was cleaning out after he died she was cleaning out his stuff and she'd found something that she wasn't sure what it was so she called my grandfather over he had a look at it and confirmed that it was a hand grenade from the second world war okay which oh, her God. which her husband had kept it was still live it still had the pin in it he'd kept it from obviously when he was in the service so my grandfather called the local police station this is in st Austell in cornwall called the local police station and said, look, you know, this is a situation. We've come across this hand grenade. I've had a look at it. It's not warm or anything, which apparently when they start to ferment, they can get warm and they, they become very unstable. Volatile. Yeah, exactly. So he said, you know, uh, I think we need people out here to come and collect this. And the police said to him, well, actually, we can't really spare anyone at the moment. Could you bring it to us? So... Incredible. It was my grandfather driving through the country lanes in Cornwall to get to St. Austell <laughs> with my nan, bless her, with this hand grenade in her lap, trying to keep it still. And when he walked into the police station with this hand grenade aloft, obviously all the police officers jumped for cover. But it just goes to show, you know, uh, my father was a police officer and I've got respect for police officers to a certain degree, but there are others that, you know, need to think a little before they, they give bad advice. I think that that's a perfect example. And the, honestly, the police officers had words to me were, are you safe now? And I said, well, I'm away from it. He said, well, hang the phone up and ring 101. And, and I just, I didn't know what to say. That's ridiculous. Uh, and as I say, that is the truth, and I've got, we, we have an incident number, and anybody wants to call me out on that and said I've, I, I didn't ring the police and stuff, I can assure you I did, and uh, that's exactly what happened, and it weren't a pellet, it was a bullet. So for all the people that are listening who aren't really familiar with any of these places, what sort of an area or radius 
are you talking about these stranger things sort of occurring? The cats, the lights, the the werewolf looking thing, all that. If we if we were to stick a pin in a map and we'd use Bempton and Flamber as as the location, let's go let's go in a fifteen to eighteen mile radius out at sea and inland. So we you know we we're looking from Bridlington, Scarborough, Filey, down the coast towards Hull and inland with these little villages of Langtoft and Cottam. All these places are producing an absolute multitude of unexplained phenomena. And I don't mean it's happening and unfolding every night, but when you start looking in archives, you see that the same locations are cropping up time and time again. The only thing that's missing is the fact that nobody's bothered to, to actually correlate it and connect it. And when you look, you realise... Same areas are producing the cat sightings. Short Lane, between Bempton and, and Bridlington, produces UFOs and cats. Don't ask me why, but the newspaper articles prove it. Going back through the decades, Short Lane, Waldgate producing the big cat sightings, Rudston producing the big cat sightings. Just the same areas. You know, it, it's difficult to understand why, but and it's probably difficult for some people to say, oh, how do you, how, how, what's he on about interdimensional? We, we, I'm not going to say these things, as in the UFOs, are from space. They're already here. The, yeah. the, 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 if these things can just manifest in our reality, then they've got some cloaking ability that we can't see and they're all around us, or they're coming through from alternative realities, things that are existing at the side of our own. And what's what's to say that that's not true? I think science already accepts that there that potentially are other realities, other dimensions. So. I don't think it's a massive leap into the dark to say that these things are actually existing in other dimensions and coming through to our own sphere of existence. They're like bleeding through almost. Yeah, and I think there's thin areas around the world where they're more prevalent and it's almost like throwing a stone in a pond and bash, that's the epicentre, and then you get the ripples going out and you've still got things happening around the periphery of these areas. Well, I think that if there was one phenomena occurring in that area, then people may be able to put it down to folklore or whatever. But there's too many things going on in these areas for people to dismiss it. And the best place that they can find out about this information is via your Truthproof books and your Truthproof YouTube channel. That's correct, yeah. I mean, and you can find me on Facebook. There's a Truthproof channel there. And anybody with an account, I mean, the books are expanding I'm on with book four now, Shelley, and I'm getting such good information that it, it would be it would be wrong of me to sort of confine it to Eastern North Yorkshire. So when some when when I've got MOD project managers contacting me, telling me about UFOs that they've seen over the sea whilst working on these projects, just because it's in Cornwall does not mean I'm going to admit, I'm going to not bother with it because I'm only dealing with Eastern North Yorkshire. I'm going to take these sightings on and I'm going to investigate them and I'm going to get information from the first-hand witness and write about them. I think they're just as interesting. I've just been fortunate that I have been investigating in an area close to where I live where there's a lot of stuff happening. But let's not forget, this area is not unique. There's stuff happening all over the country, all over the world, and there's investigators looking into it. What I say is do not limit yourself as an investigator to one particular genre, shall we say, as in UFOs or cryptids, because ultimately I think it's all linked. Could well be. Listen, Paul, thank you very much again for your time with us this morning on the show. We also like to thank you for your research that you are, as we said last time we spoke to you on the show, you are putting yourself right on the front line to make sure that you bring us the information and the research as it is without embellishing, trying to make things more fantastical than they actually are. I think the stories themselves are already incredible and you just let the stories tell it as they happen so we really appreciate that if our listeners want to get in touch with you they they can find you via your truthproof facebook page they, they can yeah or they can email me at paul sinclair ilf at gmail.com I, honestly i I'll try to respond to everybody that, that messages me. I hope there's not thousands, but <laughs> I do try to respond to everybody that messages me. You know, I'm, sometimes you get messages from people and you realise you realize that they're, they're a little bit misguided, and I don't mean they're lying or anything like that, but, they, you know, they'll tell you that there's, they've seen a UFO and then they say that it sounded like an aircraft and it had got green and red flashing lights on it. And I'm not that rude that I'd, I'd shout them down or say anything, but... 
in amongst the other reports, you've got absolutely incredible, just just incredible reports, just like the speed and figure of eight and the the projects manager. I know we've not touched on that, but you know, the, the, for the MOD and his his sighting and his experience after the sighting, it's just too good to to let these people. You'd be letting them down and doing them an injustice if you didn't cover it as honestly as what they're telling you. Well, we'd love to have you back on the show when Truthproof Four is out. If you're happy with that. Yeah, that would be lovely. I'm I'm actually truthproof for although it's probably sixty or seventy thousand words in. Well, it is. I will have another book out before then called The Night People, which will be about my experiences from childhood to now, and the reason that's probably the reason why I'm so driven today. Well, we'd definitely love to have you on to speak about that as well. I mean, you you consider yourself a regular if you're happy with that. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Sounds good to me. I've enjoyed speaking to you guys and thank you. So that's a pretty good episode again from Paul, full of information again, full of things that are going to make you think, what the hell is going on in this world? Yep, very interesting. I guess that's why he is so high up in our listening list. Yeah, he's definitely popular, that's for sure. And the thing that makes him popular is he's a nice guy as well. Talking about being a nice guy, after we spoke to him on air... Off air, we then had a discussion, and he has sent us a Truth Proof 3 book, his most recent offering that he was talking about within the show. He has signed it, Best Wishes, Paul Sinclair. It is ready for one of you lovely listeners to win. Or handsome listeners. Well, lovely I meant as in personality. They don't necessarily have to be pretty to win. Well, still, I'll stick with handsome. Okay, so if you're a handsome listener, or indeed if you're a lovely listener, (laughs) or indeed if you're neither and you're just a listener... All you need to do to be in with a chance of winning this book, signed by Paul Sinclair, is to tweet out, including the hashtag www.truthproof. So that's hashtag www.truthproof. Or head along to our Facebook page where you will see a post that I'm going to put out for winning the book. Just repost, reshare that. We'll pick up on the shares and you will also be entered into the competition. Anyway, guys, while you're doing all of that, You have to make sure, above all other things, that you stay weird, weird, wacky, wacky, and and wonderful. wonderful.